Bible reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. And if you're following in your Bible, it's on page 1145. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor, for we are fellow workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Welcome to this third session in our preaching series on the Apostles' first letter to the church in Corinth. And please can I encourage you to pick up a Bible off off one of the seats and turn to page 1145. Because um, as once again we're going to be looking across the whole of chapter 3, not just the reading that's printed on your service sheet. Um, And uh, so it'll it'll be easier to follow if you've grabbed a Bible and you've turned to page 1145. So while you're doing that, I'm going to pray. Lord, thank you for your holy word. Thank you that your word is truth. We pray you would send your spirit, shine your light on your word, that we might be changed more into the likeness of Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Amen. Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And most theologians and biblical writers divide this chapter into three sections as they comment on it. And so I'm not going to go against their expert knowledge, and uh, so I'm going to do the same. But I've come up with three subtitles, if you like. And so verses 1 to 4 are about leaving the past behind, the things we need to let go of and leave behind. Verses 5 to 17 are about the present, growing in the gospel. And verses 18 to 23 are about the future, embracing the future. All of us want to grow in our Christian lives, don't we? Um, Who wouldn't want to? And uh, who wouldn't want to be more like Jesus, to love God more deeply, to know the work of the Holy Spirit more powerfully in our lives? Well, that's what this chapter is all about. So let's start with verses 1 to 4, leaving the past behind. 
And what an opening this is. Can you imagine? Imagine if, if Bishop Andrew had written me a letter and said, Pads, I want you to take this letter and I want you to read it out to the church on Sunday morning. Okay, and, here, and so I stand in front of you and I say this. Brothers and sisters at St. Matthew's, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you baby milk, not meat and potatoes, because you couldn't handle it. In fact, you're still not ready for grown-up stuff, because you're quarreling like children. When you say, I prefer Adam's music, or I prefer Tracy preaching, or I prefer Jane praying, are you not mere humans? Are you not being totally unspiritual? Now, of course, Bishop Andrew would never say that, but imagine... That's what it was like. Some, these letters would have been read out in the churches. Paul the Apostle's letter went to the church in Corinth, and that's what it sounded like. And I think Paul's letter fell like a bomb onto the playground of what they thought was their super spiritual church. I'll bet you could hear gasps and you could see lots of downcast eyes as that letter was being read out. So what's happening? What's happening? Well, remember what we learned on the first couple of weeks about this letter to the Corinthians. Corinth was a new boomtown. When Paul wrote this letter, the city would have been not much older to them than Milton Keynes is to us, except that it was twice as big as Milton Keynes. It was about half a million inhabitants. And I think rather better architecture, a lot less roundabouts, and more eloquent street names. And the city was full of talented, gifted entrepreneurs who were all caught up in the culture of success and personal promotion. And the church in Corinth almost certainly had its own share of very talented and very gifted individuals. But the problem was the culture of the city was leaking into the culture of the church. And it was causing rifts and divisions as groups of Christians put different people on pedestals and rubbish the others. And Paul, in this letter, is trying to put them right. And verse 1, Paul says, You are mere infants in Christ. Verse 3, are you not acting like mere humans? Verse 4, are you not mere human beings? Do you hear that mirror? He's, he's using that all the way through. Now, there's a really important point here. Paul is not saying that these Christians do not have salvation. He's not even saying that they don't have the Spirit. After all, he finishes verse 1 by saying that they are in Christ. They do have salvation, but what he's saying is they haven't moved beyond the first step. They should be on solid food now, not on milk for infants. In other words, they should be growing spiritually, which ironically, as we'll see later on in the the chapters, they think they are, but they're not. How does Paul know that they're not? Well, the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5 is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are the fruits of the Holy Spirit when we're growing as Christians. But they're demonstrating quite the opposite. 
They are causing rifts and divisions. The values of the city culture in which they live are coming in. And what Paul is saying is he wants them to leave all of this bad fruit behind. And what it shows is that there's a danger in our Christian lives that we can actually coast into Christian ministry purely on the back of our natural God-given gifts and abilities. Whether you're a pastor or a musician or a prayer ministry person or a preacher or whatever way it is in which you serve, it's possible to do that without any spiritual growth. And as we'll see later on, the Corinthian church thought that they were way ahead of the game with prophecies and lots of speaking in tongues. It must have felt like a super spiritual church except for one problem. It was sadly demonstrating a super amount of worldly unspiritual life. And Paul says in effect, you think you're spiritual but you're just leaning on your human gifts and talents because your behavior demonstrates that you're not spiritual. He says that they are mere humans. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? And the challenge to us is this. Have we failed to go beyond the natural? Are we really growing spiritually or are we just relying on our natural abilities and talents to live out our Christian lives? We need to look in the mirror and any worldliness that we see, especially criticizing others, causing divisions, speaking negatively about other people, we need to leave all that behind, says Paul, and move on. And then in the next section, in verses 5 to 17, Paul urges them to grow in the gospel. And to do this, Paul uses two significant images, if you like, to get his message across. And the first is agricultural. In verses 5 to 9, he compares the work of the different apostles who they're arguing over, namely Paul and Apollos, and in verse 1, and then later on in the chapter, he also talks about Peter. And he compares their work like this. He says, I, Paul, planted the seed. Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. Do you see what he's doing here? If someone plants a seed, but they don't water it, what happens? Nothing. If someone waters the ground, but there are no seeds in it, what happens? Nothing. So firstly, the work of each Christian, whoever we are, is worth nothing without the gifts and ministry of the others. Imagine if I preached the greatest sermon ever on the love of God in Jesus Christ, but the person on welcome turns their back on people as they walk in through the door they wouldn't hear my sermon, would they? It just wouldn't go down. On the other hand, they might get a great welcome at the door, and then I stand here with a long face, all doom and gloom, and they won't feel much of the love of God either. We all need each other. The idea of that is developed much more later on in chapter 12 when Paul describes the body of Christ made up of different parts, but we all need each other. But in effect, what he's saying is, do you see how stupid it is to say that I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Peter when God has perfectly appointed all of us to do different but complementary tasks which together build up the church and help us to grow spiritually? And his second point 
in verse 7 is he says that it's God who makes things grow. The gospel writer John says that without God, we can do nothing of any kingdom value. John 15 verse 5. So no matter how popular, how charismatic, how clever or witty, whatever we are, there's no growth without God. It's God who brings the fruit out of the ministry. And he says this incredible thing in the first half of verse 7. It's almost a throwaway line. He says, so neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Well, who are the ones who planted and watered? Paul and Apollos. So let's put that in context. Paul the Apostle, perhaps the greatest evangelist, church planter, teacher, inspired scripture writer of all time, says he is nothing. Nothing. But only God who makes things grow. In fact, in verse 5, a couple of verses further back, he uses this shocking impersonal pronoun when he says, what after all, is Apollos. What is Paul? He doesn't say, who is Apollos? Or who is Paul? He says, what is Paul? He crouches even lower than that. And what he's trying to get across is that Christian leadership, and I don't just mean the church leader, I mean we all lead in, in, in different spheres, in our families, you know, or, or, or in creche, or in coffee, or whatever it is, in our workplaces, we all lead. But What he's saying is that in Christian leadership comes out of a place of humility, of servanthood, of simply doing the task that God has assigned us to do. Just as Tracy is now moving on to do the next task God has called her to do. Jethro's moving on to do the next task that God is calling him to do. We're all here, he says in verse 9. We're all, he says in verse 9, fellow workers in God's service you are God's field. And at that point, he switches the meta from, from agricultural to construction. And he says, you are God's field. You are God's building. And in doing so, he brings us to the kind of central point of this section. That growing in the gospel, growing spiritually, growing in the knowledge and the love of God can only happen when the foundation, he says, is Jesus Christ and no one else. Paul reminds them in verses 10 and 11 that it was he who had laid the foundation on which their faith was built and the foundation is only Jesus Christ. You know, God is very gracious. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I I think when we're very young in our faith or when we're having a particular struggle in our faith, when we're feeling very weak in our faith, he allows us particularly in those kind of early little toddler steps of faith, to live a little bit off the faith of others. It's called living vicariously. There's a word for you. Which, interestingly enough, is the word that vicar comes from. Uh, So-called because one of the uh, roles of a vicar, indeed of any mature Christian, is to stand in the gap when another person's faith is very new or very weak and allow that person to believe vicariously, to, 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 to cling on to faith through you. Anyway, when my faith was very new, um, just a little seedling, um, there was a guy called Mike who was in my Alpha group when I was a guest on Alpha. And he was amazing, 
To me, he was Jesus walking. He was so humble, so patient, so kind, so trusting in Jesus that for a while, my faith was growing on the back of his faith. But that's when I was at the baby milk stage, if you like. The danger as we become more mature Christians, is that we get lazy and we carry on doing that same thing. We latch on to a Christian celebrity, a a particularly gifted speaker or something like that, and we live out our faith on the back of what they say rather than owning it for ourselves. We should be leaning all our weight on Jesus himself. And we do that through prayer, through ourselves grappling with the scriptures. We've got to do that for ourselves. And through putting our gifts to good use for God's kingdom. Stepping out there, using our gifts for God's kingdom. Just as Jethro and Tracy are stepping out in different ways. And it matters because in verses 12 onward, Paul says that you can either build with gold, silver or precious stones, which will stand the test of time, will survive the fire, in Paul's analogy, or will just build with lightweight, inflammable stuff like straw or hay or wood. Although he obviously hadn't seen St. Matthew's pews when he said light, when, when, in terms of... of but we, you know what he means. But those things will vanish in the fire, won't they? On the day of the Lord, um, which is when God's complete kingdom comes and heaven and earth, the new heaven and earth are realized. And when that day comes, we will see the real value of our Christian lives, of our spiritual lives. But we don't need to fear for our salvation because God is very, very gracious. Just keep your finger in the passage a moment, but just turn to John chapter 5, 24. Sorry, I haven't got the page number. Kirsty will tell me in a second. John chapter 5, verse 24. Because I think this is really important. 1068. (coughs) 1068. So it's John chapter 5 and verse 24. Oh, sorry, 1069, is it? Okay. Um, John chapter 5, verse 24. Because when you read Paul's letter, it it can be a bit concerning. He has such a go at them. And he says you're mere infants and, and, and all that kind of thing. But God is very, very gracious. We don't need to fear for our salvation. Jesus says, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Our eternal destinies are secure the moment we trust Jesus with our lives. But as Paul says, back to our passage, as Paul says in verse 14, there will be some special reward for those who build well, but for some it'll be a little bit like escaping by the skin of our teeth through the fire. Doesn't sound too comfortable, does it? But we're safe. And in verses 16 and 17, Paul reminds the Corinthians of the interconnectedness of our lives as Christians. We are God's temple in whom the Spirit lives. Now, I think Western Christianity tends to have a rather individualistic view of faith in which we are either saved or not, we're either spirit-filled or not. The early church, I think, saw the spirit embodied much more in the people of God together more than individuals. Paul says, you together are that temple in which the Holy Spirit dwells. 
And then reminding them again of the dangers of considering themselves wise by the world standards, Paul finishes our chapter in verses in the third section, verses 18 to 23, by calling them to embrace the future, envision the future. And that future is truly amazing. In verses 21 to 23, we read the climax of this chapter. No more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Wow. Who on earth could ever want more than what Paul says that we have here? You know, we were sitting in the lunchtime alpha course, the first session on Friday, and one person asked this. They said, you know, there are all these different denominations, um, different churches, different denominations, and, and I guess they teach different things about Christianity. How do I know who to believe? What a good question. What a great question. And no, I didn't answer, oh, the Church of England, the rest are rubbish. <laughs> But you know, I think this chapter 3 in in 1 Corinthians could almost be a textbook answer to that question. Because how have all the different denominations come about? Well, okay, aside from out-and-out heresy, which we rightly reject, but humans have run after different teachers of the faith and put them on a pedestal and effectively said, I follow so-and-so, I follow so-and-so, and the divisions have occurred and the splits have occurred. And I learned very quickly at Theological College that the answer to most questions that are asked something like, is this right or is that right, or is this right and that wrong, is not one or the other, but both and Did Jesus take our punishment on the cross or did he pay a ransom? Both and. Did Jesus show us how to live or did he win a victory over sin and death? Both and. Does God love us or discipline us? Both and. Is God a judge or a loving father? Both and. Should Christians follow Paul or Apollos or Peter? All are yours, says Paul. It's both and. In other words, you don't belong to Paul or Apollos or Peter. They all belong to you. They all play a role in building up God's church. You're winners. Stop fighting. You've got it all. This is what Paul's saying. And if that weren't enough, he finishes by saying, you even have the world, you have life, you have death, you have the present, you have the future. All are yours. The world, life, death, the present, the future, all are yours. Gordon Fee, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, points out that these five things, the world, life, death, the present, the future, are the ultimate tyrannies of human existence, he calls it. In other words, they're the five things that human beings spend their entire lives in bondage to. The world and its materialism, money, possessions, health, we worry about them. We're in bondage to them, we chase after them, we obsess about them. But we will have them all in abundance forever, says Paul. We'll have them all. In the new heaven and earth, we'll have perfect health. We'll have all we need. What about life and death? Human beings rightly fear death, and yet for a Christian, death can only make you better. For everyone else, death is the end of life. For a Christian, it's the beginning of of eternal life. For everyone else, death is the end of joy. For a Christian, 
Death is permanent joy. As Tim Keller says, death used to be an executioner, but for us, death is just a gardener. What about the present and the future? Well, Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher at the age of 18, wrote his first sermon. And in that sermon, he said this. He said, there are three reasons why Christians should be happy all the time. He said, because bad things ultimately will turn out for your good. From Romans 8.28. He said that good things, the good things you have in Christ, can never be taken away from you. And thirdly, he said, the best is yet to come. And what Paul is saying is that the gospel means that all of these things we have and are taken care of. Once again, he says, you have it all. Why? He finishes in our last verse, 23, because you are of Christ and Christ is of God. And so the closer we are to Christ, the more we grow in our discipleship, the less things we will want to have hold of, and the less they'll have hold of us, the more we'll be able to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit and the greater our lives will glorify God. That's how good the gospel is.